Welcome to Life Planning 101, brought to you by Smart Money Group and Kennedy Financial Services in Eastland, Texas. Tune in every week as we share important information to help you and your family live life on purpose. Insurance, investments, legacy and tax planning, and much more. All covered now on Life Planning 101. Good morning, this is Matt Urban and Aaron Kennedy on another episode of Black and White Market Chatter on Life Planning 101. We have a special guest, Bryce Gill, an economist with First Trust. Welcome, Bryce. Thank you for being on, taking some time out this morning with us and uh, look forward to, to visiting with you, sir. Yeah, well, hey, good morning, guys. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's great to be with you this morning. Yeah, good to have you. Thanks, Bryce. So, you know, there's a lot going on, Bryce, as, as you know, um, you know, we're stewards of, of study such as yourself. Talk to us about what the Fed's doing. We were back and forth a little bit on flooding the market versus lending money supply. Kind of give us some some high level view and then dive down to a little bit about what's going on today. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's how much time do you have, right? I mean, monetary policy has gotten so confusing over the past decade because and I think a lot of people don't appreciate this, the way everything worked completely changed after 0809 and the quantitative easing programs that were implemented. And so, you know, hey, I think we're seeing a lot of the results of the zero interest rate policy from the past 10 years come home to roost today. But what you need to know is, okay, interest rates are the price of money, right? That's what they are. And so what are prices? What do they do in a market-based system? Well, they help us allocate resources effectively, right? You've got a bunch of different participants bidding and asking and selling and buying. And that sets a price, which is one easily digestible piece of information. And that's how interest rates used to work, just like the price of apples or the price of pencils or anything else. And what the Fed would do is they would add or remove reserves from the system. And then the banks would sort of bid on that money. And that would set what's called the federal funds rate, uh, which is the interest rate everything else essentially in the world is built on. Okay. Well, after 0809, the Federal Reserve printed so much money and jammed the banking system so full of these dollars that banks didn't need to bid on reserves. anymore. They all had way too many. And so interest rates became detached from a market-based mechanism. And so now when you see the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, it's literally just 12 people getting in a room and making up a number. And so nobody knows what the right price of money is. That's what markets are for, right? We get to sort of collectively as a society determine that number. Well, today, you know, again, it's just being set by fiat, by the Fed. And so what we've told people over the past few years here is, you know, interest rate hikes are going to get all of the, the news coverage, right? We had the Fed meeting two days ago. Everybody was glued to the TV as Jerome Powell comes out and says, hey, we're raising by 25 basis points. I would make the argument that it's besides the point that they raised interest rates by 25 basis points. Really, if you're worried about inflation, what you want to look at is the growth rate of the money supply, okay? Because inflation has been massively overcomplicated these past few years. Inflation, frankly, is just not a complicated subject. It's just too much money chasing too few goods. And when you think about what we did during this pandemic, we shut down the global production system and we printed $5 trillion, okay? And so the too much money side of the problem is the only thing the Fed can fix. And so we like to watch the M2 measure of money, it's high-powered money, it's dollars in people's hands they can go out and spend. That's the number you should be following if you want to know what's going to be happening with inflation, if you want to know if the Fed hiking rates or tightening monetary policy is going to have an effect and actually bring down that inflation rate, you know, we're, we've all been talking about. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because I, I think we've talked a lot about how 
you know, like I said, the Fed publishes the rates, everybody hangs on the and or the if of Jerome Powell, you know, what does that fine-tuned language say? But nobody's talking about the tightening and you're nailing it. It's so so where do they publish the M2 supply money? I mean, I know you can go out there and Google it, but nobody's talking about it. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? The Fed's entire job is to regulate how many dollars are in circulation. That's all they can do, right? That's what monetary policy is. And still, you know, I can think of only one press conference. It was at the Cato Institute last year, I think in November, maybe October, where somebody asked Jerome Powell about the money supply. Other than that, it has not been talked about whatsoever in the mainstream press. Uh, and it's pretty funny to think of it. It's, it's ironic, right? It's their entire job and they don't even get asked about it. And you know, the good news is this is completely readily available data. It's published every month. It used to, by the way, get published every week. Uh, they changed all of that during the pandemic. Like they changed a lot of things regarding data during the pandemic. Right. Uh, but if you want to find it, what I would do is I just Google M2 Fred. Fred is the St. Louis Federal Reserve website and it'll pop right up for you. Oh, great. Great, great. Yeah, that's good stuff. I think you nailed it. Everything we base uh, our studies on is supply and demand. And they're crushing supply from both sides. They're flooding supply with money and pulling goods off the table. So, and demand stays equal or raises, rises. So inflation's just through the dang roof. And the tools that we have today to get any of that fixed just isn't, doesn't work very well. Not, right. not as much today as we as it did in the, the older economy where we relied on a, on a larger leveraged company right. or economy. Well, and Bryce, you nailed it earlier. Interest rates, people are so disconnected or money's disconnected from interest rates. And we talk about in kind of a different aspect where, you know, we spoke the other day about people used to pay stuff off in three years. You know, you wouldn't buy a car that you couldn't pay off in three years. That's gone. That is completely gone. You finance a payment, you know, and that's why some of these homes are now unaffordable because you can't afford the payment because interest. You couldn't afford the home even when interest was low, but you could afford the payment. So that's just kind of interesting where where it's it's not just in your day to day. It's affected. It's it's at every aspect of the scale. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, another thing to note, right, is that when we lower interest rates to zero and money is free, what that does, not just in economic theory, right? I mean, there's a ton about this in economic theory, but also just in the real world, okay, essentially what happens is you have malinvestment. You have bad management decision-making that happens, right? Because everybody looks like a genius when money is free. You're going to make money, right? I mean, <laughs> the last funny. 10 years after the financial crisis, you threw a dart at a board, you made money on everything you bought, right? Well, today, interest rates start to rise. What do we see happening? Well, all of a sudden, all these Silicon Valley companies are going out of business. All of a sudden, these banks are starting to go under, right? Because they had management teams that had no clue what they were doing. They're politically appointed people, essentially, with no banking experience. But, hey, they looked like geniuses when interest rates were at zero. And so Warren Buffett, I think, said it best. You know, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. We're seeing a lot of people swimming naked right now. Yeah, that's super interesting. Let's take that opportunity. We'll leave folks with that for just a few minutes while we take a quick break here on Black and White Market Channel on Life Planning 101. We're back with the second piece of our episode today on Black and White Market Channel on Life Planning 101. We're talking about how some of the people were really ill-equipped with free money to make decisions. And then when money gets more expensive, those decisions really are, the bad decisions are exposed. 
Yeah, and I think some news came out today, or I mean, I guess it came out yesterday, but Deutsche Bank is struggling right now. Everybody's scared of them. You know, Credit Suisse just went uh, restructured, right? got bought out. Who's next? It's to the point that we know it's not just an isolated bank here and there. Deutsche, Credit Suisse, those are some huge institutions that have been around for a super long time. And the tide's out. You know, that's the thing. Right. That's and, exactly right. And hasn't Yellen and Powell both mentioned that they'll basically do whatever it takes to help. Now they're trying to not say that they're going to cover every bank and every deposit 100%, but they'll do what it takes to keep liquidity. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important first to differentiate between the European banks and the American banks. Obviously, you know, interest rates are going up worldwide and it's impacting all of them, right? But, you know, Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank, these banks have been essentially on their deathbed for 10 years, ever since the European banking crisis happened. I mean, they've been zombies. They've been kind of like limping along. And so it's not surprising, right, that interest rates go up. They're, you know, in, in huge trouble. And, and you know, by the way, right? They have Europe, plenty of time general, to fix their book. Yeah. And, and Europe in general is, is a disaster right now. The energy crisis the United States had in the 1970s, that's what Europe is having today, right? Russia cut off the gas, cut off the oil. They're having a massive energy crisis. You know, you've got companies in, in Germany, for example, that make like ball bearings and soap or whatever, right? Just like meat and potatoes, boring manufacturing companies that have been around for 200 years, survived World War One, survived World War II, survived the hyperinflation during Weimar that are getting taken down today because of energy prices, right? So I think, yes, there's just a lot of loans that are now non-economic in Europe. You know, a lot of these assets on the books at like Deutsche Bank are going bad. And so- that's another factor that's going on there that probably isn't really a concern for us in the U.S. But you know, overall here, it's just a lot of banks weren't hedging interest rate risk. They had unrealized losses in their bond portfolio that typically they just hold it to maturity and it wouldn't matter. But all of a sudden, people are pulling dollars out. They have to sell these assets at a loss. It wipes out their equity so they can you know, uh, pass the money on to depositors. And so, yeah, what we've seen the Fed do okay, is at the same time they're raising interest rates two days ago. That's tightening monetary policy, right? Well, at the same time, the Fed balance sheet, which has been falling for a year, in the past two weeks has increased by $400 billion. So they've turned the money printer back on, okay? And they've erased 60, 70% of all the tightening they've done in the past year because they're trying to step in and bail out these banks that are having problems. Essentially what they're doing is they're accepting government bonds at par value as collateral, doing a swap, right? these banks have cash to meet depositors and then you know, later on they'll be able to get their assets back for you know what they gave it to the Fed for. Uh, so it, it's a roundabout way to just essentially bail out the banks. And it looks to me like quantitative tightening has ended, at least for the moment. So it, when you think about it, right, it's like on one hand, the Fed is raising interest rates. On the other hand, they're increasing their balance sheet. It's like a car with two steering wheels that are going in opposite directions, right? Yeah. Right. And this isn't the first time, you know, I don't know if it goes through, but the uh, bailing out all the student loans, yeah. same exact situation, right? Tightening money, printing to give to somebody else. Let's choose who gets the money, who gets hurt and who doesn't. Right. You know, it's con- it's confusing. It's difficult because yeah. there's no clear answer and clear direction of what in the world's going on and who gets the bailout next. Yeah. Well, and, and my mind kind of goes to you know, the Fed's trying to save face, right? Because we just touched on the fact that nobody talks about money supply, tightening, easing the balance sheet. They're raising rates. They're staying tough. Fed Powell gets his legacy of being the the, the, the strong arm, but yet what's happening on the, on the other side of it. So just kind of an interesting uh, push and pull. Yeah. 
Right, so let's let's go back. We brought up something kind of interesting about the petrodollar system. And, you know, I kind of want to touch on, you know, high level. What does that mean? And kind of what happens? Because we talked, Aaron and I have talked a lot about what happens if we come off the petrodollar system? What is that extreme situation? So kind of give us a, a, a quick broad base of the petrodollar system, and then we'll take a quick break and wrap up with our final segment. Yeah, okay, so petrodollar is basically the idea that after the United States goes off the gold standard in 1972, right, the dollar is no longer backed by a commodity explicitly. And so, hey, what are we going to use to back the dollar? Okay, and amidst all the chaos in the 1970s, we also had the oil embargo, right, from OPEC. Okay, and so what the petrodollar is as an idea was Henry Kissinger goes over to Saudi Arabia. He tells them, hey, listen, you're never going to embargo us on oil again, okay? And in exchange for that, we're going to give you military support as the Saudi monarchy. So, you, you know, you won't get overthrown by all these Wahhabist Islamist people. And the bargain is also that when you get paid dollars for your oil, you recycle those dollars into U.S. Treasury bonds. OK, and so we sort of created it wasn't explicit, but uh, sort of like a commodity standard based on oil with the dollar. Right. You needed dollars. so You could buy oil. Everybody needs energy. Uh, so the dollar is now a way that you can get necessary commodities, you know, oil being the one in this case, right? And so a lot of people are worried because Saudi Arabia has said, hey, maybe we'll sell oil in Yuan. Um, a lot of people think the whole reason for the Iraq war was that um, uh, Hussein was thinking about, you know, selling oil for gold, similar thing in Libya with Muammar Gaddafi, was thinking about, hey, we'll sell oil for gold, okay? Russia has totally the idea of selling oil for gold. So a lot of people are very concerned that it dispels the end of like the dollar's status as the reserve currency if all of this happens. And what I would say is, I don't really see that to be the case because something pretty significant has happened with regards to the US energy situation in the past 10 years. And that's the advent of hydraulic fracturing. The United States has very rapidly become the largest energy producer on earth. We've produced more oil than Saudi Arabia by far, more natural gas than anybody else in the world. And so, yes, I mean, maybe now if you're Sri Lanka, you could buy oil from Saudi Arabia and Yuan, but, you know, hey, you could still go out and buy oil from the United States in dollars. You know, oil is still available in dollars from the United States directly. We are now net exporters of energy. And, you know, by the way, there's a lot of other things that in modern society that you need, right, besides just oil. That was really a major thing in the 1970s. It still is today, obviously. But, you know, if you want the most modern software, if you want the best military equipment, if you want exports of wheat or soybeans or other major agricultural commodities, if you want cultural goods like movies, if you want expertise in accounting and engineering and a whole host of other things, guess what? You need dollars to pay people in the United States for those services, right? So I think essentially the petrodollar was how this whole system started, right? It was the jumping off point after the end of the gold standard. But since then, the United States produces so many things that the rest of the world needs. We have sort of a monopoly on a lot of this stuff that Saudi Arabia selling oil in Yuan, I don't think really upsets the apple cart significantly here. I love throwing logic into the equation. That usually messes up everybody. <laughs> here's, here's a question. At what point does the balance sheet get so overwhelming that people start to question the dollar? And then that definitely will start trickling into the petrol system. And I mean, it's 
both sides of it. You know, petrol petrol system is giving us the ability to grow our balance sheet that much. Is it will we ever get to a point that someone says, hey, it's actually safer to go to the yuan, even though the dollar's more plentiful? Well, I would say, yeah, what you really need, and you look back through all of history, okay, for one country reserve currency to be overthrown by another, you need to have a rising incumbent that can take over that responsibility. So for example, the United States dollar takes over as the reserve currency from the British pound after World War One, because the British essentially bankrupted themselves during that war. They had to sell us all of their naval bases. New York took over as the global financial center from London. Uh, and so the United States was able to patrol the sea lanes and you know do all the the property rights and still clear all the transactions with the banking system. And so I, I look around the world and you, you basically need like another rising incumbent power that could displace the United States and take over these responsibilities. And, you know, frankly, China is a complete disaster right now. Their population peaked. They have the Evergrande real estate collapse happening. Basically, the 0809 financial crisis, housing bubble, but on steroids, right? And not just residential, but commercial real estate, whole host of other things. China is sort of imploding in a way. Okay, so it can't really be them. And by the way, who would want to hold their resources in Yuan? <laughs> Billionaires disappear over there regularly, right? Completely uncorrupted. <laughs> all your money is at the beck and call of the Communist Party of China. I think one of the biggest advantages America has, honestly, is the legacy of property rights here. The fact that, hey, if you have dollars in a bank, you know, you're most likely going to be able to use them to purchase something. The Europeans are a complete disaster right now. It can't be the euro. Like the Japanese yen's not going to be it, right? They gassed out in the, the 1990s. And so what nation state is going to step in and replace the United States? I mean, I think that's the relevant question here. Unless you're very, very optimistic about like Bitcoin and blockchain technology, I just don't see who it is. Prettiest girl at the dance. Yeah, that's and you hear that a lot. You know, people say how miserable it is in certain regards. They say, yeah, but where else would you go? Where else would you be? And so that kind of kind of falls true. And beautiful world of currency. Yeah, and I, and I guess that's true. You know, when you're the the less piece, the lesser of the bruised evils, if you will. I don't I don't know the best way to say yeah, that. Cleanest dirty shirt in the laundry. There you go. Yes. There you go. That's that's super interesting. Well, um, we got a few minutes left, so let's touch on recession for just a minute. Kind of what that looks like, likelihood. You know, I know we're we're in kind of a, a an interesting economic state, especially with the recent the recent news on the banking and such. So, talk to us about a little bit about recession. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, first thing to say is last year we had a huge debate as a country about whether or not we're in recession. Right? We had two negative quarters of GDP in a row. That's the rule of thumb for recession and. By the way, it's a pretty good rule of thumb overall. Like, I went and looked at the numbers, and like 90% of the time you get two negative quarters of GDP, it is declared officially a recession. But last year we said, listen, we get this bad, but we don't think this is actually a recession. We think all the data has been massively distorted by COVID, and specifically the shift in consumer preferences that happened between goods and services. Okay, And we had lockdowns. Everybody's stuck at home. They're not going to restaurants and bars or cruises or whatever else. Spending on services fall off a cliff. We're all stuck at home buying goods off of Amazon. All this goes into reverse after vaccines come out and places reopen. And so last year, we were still in the middle of this, what I would call like a normalization, return to pre-pandemic consumer preferences. And so, yeah, you saw a bunch of layoffs at big name companies, but they're mostly in the goods sector. And services were still in recovery. And so services are a bigger part of the economy than goods. If services were recovering, the overall economy could grow. I think services basically bailed us out in the US last year. 
easiest way to think about it is you get laid off at an Amazon warehouse, you get hired at Chipotle. And so this year, it looks very different to me. Services have fully recovered to where they would have been if the pandemic hadn't happened, but goods have further to fall. And so what that means is the job losses and goods that are coming on the horizon aren't going to be able to get absorbed by rising employment in the service sector, which means a recession. It means unemployment rate probably goes up to some degree. Unemployment goes up. It means a decline in consumer spending and corporate profits. Profits are one of the two major variables that go into financial asset valuation. I think that's really where the volatility in markets is going to come from this year. I don't want to overstate the recession. It's not going to be 08, 09. It's not going to be the wheels coming off the bus or like a cataclysmic event. It's really more like two, three percentage point increase in unemployment. Uh, but there is going to be some pain there, right? I think really it's just finally feeling some of the pain of all the policies that we did over the past couple of years that got completely papered over by massive stimulus. Sounds pretty clear. Right. <laughs> yeah. The thing that sounds a little different is, you know, I think we got really accustomed to, you know, March of 2020, where that was it. You know, it was like, what, down 30% over a month and right. a half. And then we're on like some two and a half year run. And then it's like, so we're all waiting for that. And everybody's trying to jump in and time it. And the market's like, start, stop, start, stop. But really, if we think about it, it's been pretty uncomfortable for about a year and a half, two years now. Oh, yeah. So, it hasn't been fun. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, I think the bottom line is, given what what's going on in markets, rising interest rates, a possible recession here, all this geopolitical risk going on, the world is a very uncertain, volatile place. Okay. And so I think the mindset a lot of people have, again, is like the decade after 08, 09, interest rates are 0%. Whatever you buy, it goes up 20% a year. That's just not the environment we're in anymore. I don't know any other way to put it. I think we're in capital preservation mode right now. It's how do you defend what you have and ride out the storm? And the way you position for that is, yes, you buy defensive investment, you buy value over growth, you buy dividend payers, you, uh, you know, maybe you throw some commodities in there because you're worried about inflation hedging, right? And so this is very different than just, I'm going to buy a, a market cap weighted index fund that's mostly tech stocks, right? Yeah. Go, baby, go. Yeah, that's great. Well, and I and I hate speaking of go, but we go. We're getting we're getting really tight on time, Bryce. I want to yield to you if there's any last minute things you want to say or throw in. Be happy to to, to accommodate that. Yeah, well, I, I'd say listen. You know, there's a lot of things going on out in the world. There's a lot of bad news out there, no question about it. And so, I guess I'll just end and say, man, I'm thankful to be living in the United States, man. I look around the world. I mean, we got two oceans. We got two friendly neighbors. We got the most fresh water in the world. We're the biggest food producer and exporter. We've got the best demographics. We're the best innovators. We have the best military, uh, the most arable farmland. I mean, we're going to be fine over here, guys. It's the rest of the world I'm really worried about. And, you know, the United States, in a lot of ways, I think that, you know, maybe not in an absolute sense, but on a relative sense, is coming out of this thing looking pretty good. So I think it's a no-brainer to be invested for the long term in the U.S. I don't see anywhere else. And do you have anything you want to add? No, that was great. I, I love the way you put that. God bless America. I'm glad we're here. We may feel like we have troubles, but not when you step across the pond. That's right. That's pretty beautiful. Well, good. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Again, Bryce Steele, economist with First Trust, Aaron Kennedy, Matt Irvin here uh, to wrap up today's episode of Black and White Market Chatter on Life Planning 101. Thank you for joining us for Life Planning 101, brought to you by Smart Money Group and Kennedy Financial Services. If you have questions, you can email them to lifeplanning at kennedy-financial.com. Be sure to tune in next week for more Life Planning 101.
The opinions expressed herein are those of the firm and are subject to change without notice. The opinions referenced are as of the date of publication and are subject to change due to changes in the market or economic conditions and may not necessarily come to pass. Any opinions, projections, or forward-looking statements expressed herein are solely those of the author, may differ from the views or opinions expressed by other areas of the firm, and are only for general informational purposes as of the date indicated. Securities offered through Calton & Associates Incorporated, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Smart Money Group LLC. Kennedy Financial Services and Smart Money Group LLC are separate entities and are not owned or controlled by Calton & Associates Incorporated.